Welcome to episode 30 of the Various and Sundry podcast. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined in virtual studio by my co-host, my colleague, my good friend, and the man who lives and dies with the fate of Mets baseball, John Sloat. Doc, what's happening? Well, it is a lovely summer after a summer morning here as we uh, are recording this segment of the podcast. And so, uh, but also we're getting closer and closer to the start of the school year. Yeah, we're hitting the end of July here and it feels like we're gearing up. We're gearing up here in academia for uh, the onslaught of uh, students to return. Yes, and this will be a fall semester unlike any other, in the words of uh, Jim Nance there. so Yeah, I said almost students returning that are infected with, with various sundry diseases. Yeah, yeah, you cannot say that. Yeah, so, <laughs> well, we want to say a special welcome to new listeners because we're imagining that we'll have some people who are here because they found out that we are doing an interview with Dane Ortland. So, I want to just give you a sense of what kind of podcast this is. We call it the Various and Sundry Podcast because we talk about various and sundry topics. And if you want to just see just how broad those topics can be, uh, feel free to go back and look at previous episode titles and you'll get a good feel for that. But John, what are some of the areas that we tend to focus our attention on? Yeah, we, uh, we normally begin with something of a sports roundup. So we discuss what's happening in the world of sports, what our teams are doing. You're an Ohio State fan. I am a New York sports fan. So, so we usually touch on those markets a little bit. Um, we usually have a main topic, something usually culture, life, ministry, travel, something, something in those veins. Uh, and then uh, uh, whatever episode number we're on. So this one's 30. So we'll name the episode after... Uh, and a famous athlete that wore that uh, in history. And then we end the show uh, with one thing we liked. It could be a podcast. It could be a recommendation. It could be just uh, something that we did this weekend that was, uh, that was enjoyable. So that, that's yeah. sort of what we cover day in and day out. That's sort of the rhythm of, uh, of what we do. Yeah. And uh, for those who don't know, I'm a professor at Grace College and Theological Seminary. I teach New Testament. And John, what is your role at Grace yeah, so I do uh, a lot of things at Grace. Um, anything from a professor also in New Testament, uh, part-time to a director of a program. So I do quite a bit of recruiting. Uh, and then I also do some grant writing on the side as, as well as a, a few other things. Excellent, excellent. So uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at Pod, And we both have our own individual Twitter feeds as well. You can find me at Doc Harmon, and you can find John at John underscore Sloat. You can reach the podcast by our email, variousandsundrypodcast at gmail.com. And we have a Facebook page, so you can find us there as well. We'd love for you to go on to, um, to the podcast app and leave a rating and a review. We did have one new review in the last week since we've recorded, and we also want to remind our uh, faithful listeners and let our new listeners know we are gearing up for a question and answer episode coming up down the road. And so we'd love to hear what questions you have for us and maybe we'll feature it on that Q&A episode. So hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, email, and uh, we'll we'll go that route. But uh, we want to save as much time as possible for our interview with Dane, but we we do want to touch base in the world of sports and so, uh, I, I, in my view, I think the, 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 the most notable headline recently has been the fact that Major League Baseball has had to cancel a couple of games because of an outbreak of COVID in the Miami Marlins team. Yeah, and that's, uh, I, I think I heard this morning, 40% of the people traveling with the team between players, coaches, trainers, those sorts of things have uh, have some sort of level of COVID. Um, and I even heard this morning that, and I haven't verified this, right, but I've heard this morning that uh, the players were given the option last night. If they wanted to play, they could go play, whether they had COVID or not, um, which is not a great barrier uh, from keeping <laughs> the spread of this virus. Uh, no. So, uh, yes, it was. Uh, it's, it seems to be this is the fear we all had of baseball. Um, 
And uh, I threw a yeah. hot takeout to my fantasy baseball group that I didn't think we were going to have the World Series this year. Uh, and that was met as a too dark of a comment uh, to entertain. <laughs> too soon, right? Too soon? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so how are your Mets doing? I actually have caught, believe it or not, portions of three of the Mets games so far just because they've been on national TV. Yeah, so they've been on ESPN. Um, the first the first two were relatively close. Um, great pitching from the Mets. Uh, DeGrom on back-to-back Cy Youngs looked amazing. Um, they won the first game, won nothing. Second game, they lost in extras. The third game was bad. Um, yeah, I was, tuned into that third game and oh, saw the score is 14 to 1. So, <laughs> Yeah, I think I turned that off somewhere in the seventh inning. I think I made it that far. But it was they, they, lacked, they lacked any sort of enthusiasm for that game. Uh, and then last night, they, they won 7 to 4 in Boston. And so that was, that was encouraging, and the bats started to pick up a little bit. So that's, that's hopeful. Maybe we're getting into some sort of form um, for the season, but two and two. And with the expanded playoffs that they also announced this week, I think 500 would make the playoffs. So we'll see how it goes. It's going to be unpredictable. That's for sure. And uh, in a couple of days, we have the restart of the NBA, which I think has a greater chance of being successful because they're doing the bubble and they have a greater control on player interaction, smaller numbers of players so I think I'm more optimistic that the NBA will successfully get through their modified season than Major League Baseball will. And they have a, they have a pretty harsh penalty system. I saw an individual went out of the bubble in order to um, attend uh, some festivities and uh, returned and, and got quarantined for several days. So uh, I think that, that seems to be a good way to lock it down, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, for those who are new to the podcast as well, we have been actually taking a segment from the last three episodes where we discussed a section of Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. And so this interview that we recorded uh, a couple of weeks ago is sort of the culmination of our uh, working through Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And uh, just a a note before we uh, go ahead and uh, hear that interview. This interview was recorded two weeks ago, which was before the death of J.I. Packer. And Dane will actually mention J.I. Packer and his, his appreciation for, for, for Packer and all that he's done to uh, help raise awareness of the Puritans. So just so you're aware, um, this was recorded before Packer passed away, but uh, we know you're going to enjoy this interview, and so without further ado, here is our interview with Dane Ortland. Well, we have a very special privilege today. A first in the history of the Various and Sundry podcast, we are joined by the author of the book that we have been reading together, Gentle and Lowly, the one, the only, Dane Ortland. And so Dane is the Chief Publishing Officer and Bible Publisher at Crossway. He serves as an editor for the Knowing the Bible series, which is a wonderful uh, series of small group Bible study materials, 12-week studies on different books of the, of the Bible, as well as the Short Studies in Biblical Theology series, which is a great series to introduce you to some of just the basics of uh, biblical theology. We've recommended that here on the podcast before. And he himself is the author of several books. In addition to the one we're talking about today, uh, Dane authored a book called Edwards on the Christian Life. And so in addition to those things, he's an elder at Naperville Presbyterian Church in Naperville, Illinois. And he and his wife, Stacy have five children. And it is our great privilege to welcome Dane Ortland to the program today. Thanks so much, Matt and John. Great to talk with you guys. Um, good to meet you, John, for the first time. And Matt, of course, you and I go back many years, back to grad school days. So it's great to touch base with you again, brother. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, it's, it's been fun to see how the Lord has guided our respective paths since those uh, days at Wheaton and um, been great to keep in touch with you. And so we're, we're thrilled that you uh, were willing to join us and um, just wanted to start with uh, what motivated you to write Gentle and Lowly? Hmm. Well, thanks, brother. Really, uh, it was 
reading the Puritans, showing me texts in the Bible and realizing I had a seriously underdeveloped view of Jesus Christ. Uh, I mean, I, this is after completing a PhD in New Testament, <laughs> realizing I had a junior varsity, two-dimensional, underdeveloped view of the Savior himself, who he most deeply is. So I was impeccably orthodox in my Christology, I think, uh, but it was, it was largely skeleton, but not flesh. It was a lot of doctrinal backbone, but not heart. And it was Thomas Goodwin's book in 2013, The Heart of Christ, and the longer title is The Heart of Christ, Who is in Heaven for Sinners Who Are on Earth, that began to crack open to me the really the one thing I'm trying to say in that short little book. Um, and so really, Matt, what was motivating me was a, a deep desire, a, 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 an insistence that other Christians learn what I have been learning. Uh, I, I think we've had a wonderful recovery of gospel-centeredness in the Christian life and of Christ-centeredness in Christian preaching, but uh, those are both obje more objective things. What about the more affective, subjective side of who Jesus is? I had classes in seminary on the work of Christ and the person of Christ, but never the heart of Christ. So I think this is something neglected, it's not something the Puritans added to the Bible. It's something they saw in the Bible, which we have neglected. Yeah, excellent. Dane, what are, what, are some, what are some things we miss uh, as Christians when we don't focus on the heart of Christ? What are, what are some aspects? Certainly, we want to be doctrinally sound in those different things, but, but what are some things we miss uh, when we don't see the heart of Christ? I think you miss enjoying being a Christian. Hmm. Um, you can be a Christian— and not be dialed into what Jesus Christ, by his own claim in Matthew 11, and the testimony of the apostles throughout the rest of the New Testament, what his own claim is. You can be a Christian. You can be, I think, to a degree, a fruitful Christian, but you'll be a treadmill Christian. And mm -hmm. it's exhausting, and the pressure's on. And that's how I have lived most of my most of my Christian life, John, I'm 41. I think I was probably born again at age six. My dad tucking me in, in Des Moines, Iowa, at my grandparents' house, praying with me. I remember the relief I felt hmm. asking God to forgive my sins because of the gospel. Um, but most of that 36, 35 years or so walking with the Lord, it's been on the treadmill. And even more than that, I, I, I didn't realize that Jesus Christ, that he loves me most where I am most defeated. Hmm. That his heart is drawn out to me most strongly in that very place, not once I get over it. Hmm. Uh, and there, there are attendant realities such as the intercession and advocacy of Christ, to answer your question more directly, that get easily missed if we're not thinking about the places in the Bible where we are told about what God's in the Old Testament and Christ in the New Testament heart for his people. We're talking about for his people, not for unbelievers. Mm -hmm. yes. So talk a little bit about um, what you think the biggest misconception Christians have about the heart of Christ. Hmm. Well, I think one of the things I'm trying to say in the book uh, over and over, Matt, is we don't realize how naturally and intuitively and unwittingly we create um, a vision of God and Christ and their love for us that is just a bigger and better version of human love. Hmm. I think that the way we tend to view God and, with, and his son is that he's incredibly patient, filled with love for us, and he has this massive stockpile of grace. And as we move through our Christian life sinning and in anguish and pain and suffering, um, we are making debits to that stockpile of grace, but there's a lot of it, so don't worry. Hmm. But actually, 
when the Bible says that God is something like rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, it does not mean that he has a great big stockpile, which hopefully will outlast our lives and our sinning. But actually, according to the logic of the end of Romans 5 into Romans 6, the stockpile grows with our sins. That's an audacious thing to say, but I believe that it is biblically defensible. However, counterintuitive, even defiant of our intuitions, it is. So I think we tend to view, what I'm not saying is, Christians don't understand that God is loving. Hey guys, God loves you. No, we know we will smile and nod when told God loves us. But drilling into the heart of what that actually means, according to texts like Hosea 11 and Jeremiah 30 to 33 and Lamentations 3 and Exodus 34, 6 and 7, what kind of love is that? It is a love that pursues us all the more if we are in Christ, when we are at our worst, not when we are at our best. That's a Jesus, and that's a God that I have not known most of my life. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I, uh, I remember when I first started reading uh, Gentle and Lowly, I, I, I remember thinking that it resonated with, um, with Exodus 34, and so in the back of my brain, I was thinking, I wonder if he's going to tie that together mm-hmm. with what we see of Jesus there in, um, in Matthew 11. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I feel like in reading the book, I, I had seen what you noticed in Exodus 34 in terms of at the heart of who God is, is his unbelievable richness and mercy that, that he is quick to forgive. He delights to forgive. And I know that was, that was really uh, paradigm shifting for me, but I had not made the connection that you so helpfully make in gentle and lowly, that it's at the heart of Christ rooted in that text in Matthew 11 there. And so uh, I, I just know as, as I read this book, it has been such a remarkable um encouragement to me. And um, I I think the best way that I can put an analogy to this is feeling like it was a tall glass of cold water after being out in the hot sun and not having taken a drink in a long time. Just that, that satisfaction of this is really who Christ is. And um, it repeatedly throughout the book, I was moved nearly to tears at the beauty of Christ through, um, through what you, what you share in there. So thank you for doing that so clearly and so, um, powerfully. Well, you're most welcome, Matt. And, and, uh, thank you. And as you're saying, what we find in the new Testament of the heart of Christ is the, is clearly the continued trajectory of what we are shown in the old Testament about who God is the most unblushing statements about the merciful, compassionate heart of God are in the prophets, the, the doom and gloom guys of the Bible, yeah. not the Gospels. Um, uh, the most, the most, almost make your face turn red statements about <laughs> my darling children and this kind of thing. Um, and uh, so, what we're not saying, the three of us in this podcast, is. Go to the New Testament if you want to know what God is most deeply like. Rather, it's all 66 books. It just gets, mo- Calvin said, shadow goes to substance. It, be- it becomes totally clear yeah. In, the, yeah. in the New Testament. And one of the things we, we hear all the time is that the God of the Old Testament was this wrathful, vengeful God, kind of, kind of uh, what you're saying. And then in the New Testament, we have Jesus, right, who, who is loving, kind, um, how do how do those two hold together? Um, how how does the wrath of God and the gentle and lowly heart of Christ? How how do those things hold together? Not by splitting the difference. Mm-hmm. Not by saying, "Well, let's have a, a tepid amount of one and a tepid amount of the other." Oh, we've been talking about this one a little uh, quite a bit. Let's talk about the other one more now. But rather by pushing the pedal all the way down on both. Uh, because the the deeper you push into the Bible's teaching on divine retribution and wrath, which is clearly there, you cannot be a Christian and deny that. Uh, uh, push down on that, and that 
causes to soar in wonder all the more what you then discover about what Christ's deepest heart is. And, um, you know, Thomas Goodwin makes the point, we were just talking about rich in mercy, Ephesians 2. He makes the point in his sermons on Ephesians 2 in volume 2 of his works that nowhere does God describe himself in the scripture as rich in wrath. Mm. That is not to say that God is... Um, 100% merciful and 80% wrathful. God is simple. He is fully all of his attributes. He's not like a pie chopped up and some pieces are larger than others. Um, no, he is, he is fully wrathful and fully merciful. But following the Bible's language, letting not philosophical categories, but the scripture itself set the, our categories for us, we're told he is rich in mercy and we are told, for example, Lamentations 3, at the high point of that five-chapter book, that he does not from his heart afflict or grieve the children of men. Um, so Jonathan Edwards and Thomas Goodwin and Warfield almost says the same thing, will call God's judgment, retributive judgment, his strange work, and his compassion, his natural work. And I think that is a biblical thing to say, even if the philosophical theologians get nervous, because it is, <laughs> some, it is um, following the Bible and saying, what is it, can I speak this way, what is it that if you prick God, pours out most naturally? What flows out of him in the most flood-like way? What is he quickest to do? The Bible seems to sanction a view of God and of Christ that says what pours out of him most naturally is embrace. Mm. And he is fully just. He would, we would have to de-God God to deny that and, and wrathful. In fact, in the passage right before <laughs> in Matthew 11, he's walking around saying, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. Uh, if the signs done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Whoa, in other words, to hell with you. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not just an insult. That's, that's, a, that's a wrath statement. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I would say push hard in both directions. But then as you read the Bible, observe how the Bible itself speaks of what most deeply instinctively, if we can speak that way, flows out of God. So as we think about, uh, obviously, we as Christians are called to, uh, at some level, imitate Christ. Mm -hmm. We're obviously not, you know, fully God and fully human like Jesus is. We're not sinless like Jesus is. And so as we think about uh, how, we how we live this out in our own lives, how we become more Christ-like, how do we show the heart of, of Christ to others? How do we model it? How do we teach it? Um, as you've thought about this, and even I, I, I'm trusting have tried to put it into action in your own life, what, what sort of suggestions or, or guidance might you be able to give us as we think about how do I model this to others? I think that's a great question, Matt. It's an urgent question, and it's one that I continue to grapple with. I think a couple thoughts come to mind. One, we will not treat others with gentleness and dignity and respect and tenderness out ahead of our own swallowing and absorption of Christ's tender heart for us. I mean, that's the one-two rhythm all through the New Testament. Um, uh, thought number one. Thought number two, when we treat others with gentleness— I, and I say this as someone who I am not naturally wired just to be gentle with everyone. As my five kids would attest, I need help. I need to grow in this. So this is, so there's that. But as we treat others with gentleness, we're not diverging from the way Christ handles people or even handles us. We're aligning with it. We're not compromising. We're not being morally unserious to treat others with gentleness and with tenderness, though it, that can feel maybe at a pragmatic level um, 
weak or or minimally impactful or not serious enough. So in our parenting, in our uh, preaching or teaching or employee reviews or evangelizing, uh, we can easily feel as if impact rises as strength of tone rises. Yeah. But but I, I pause and I say, now, Dane, what actually changes you? In those who parented you, in your boss's treatment of you, in your elders' handling of you, in your friends' interaction with you, when we are handled gently, we open up. It's like a sea anemone where you reach down and poke it and it closes up. And over time, if it isn't touched, it opens up again. Under what kind of correction do I find myself able to actually listen and hear and grow and be humble? Under what kind of leadership? Guys, just this morning, uh, I'm reading through Second Timothy again, and I noticed something I'd never noticed before. At the end of chapter two, um, he, he's, he's, uh, Paul is telling Timothy about what the Lord's servant, how he must be. At the very end of chapter 2, verse 25, he says, correcting, what must the Lord's servant do? Correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, ESC has period, new sentence. God may perhaps grant them to repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So the English reader might think, okay, so we've got a new idea starting here, mid to verse 25. But no, in the Greek text, it's one sentence. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, sort of, so that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Conclusion. Apparently, when we in our church leadership handle people gently, that is nurturing a fertile environment in their heart for God to get in and do his reconstructive work. I'm not... I'm a Calvinist. I mean, God's going to do what he's going to do. He doesn't, you know, okay. But the means he uses, a means he uses, according to this text, is, uh, Dane, treat people gently, because that's a way that God will then actually get in and start changing them, which, again, holding up a mirror, that's how I get changed. It's when, when people approach me gently. So your question, Matt, is simply, very, very urgent, and one that we must continue to be asking of ourselves. Uh, Dane, one of your one of your one of your main sources uh, in this book is the Puritans. Um, I, I think I was a little overwhelmed at, at how many Puritans you you worked into the book from from John Owen, uh, Thomas Goodwin, John uh, John Bunyan, a, a number of people. Um, what what initially sparked your interest in the Puritans? Desperate help for living the Christian life and knowing that God's not going to give up on me, I suppose, would be the main answer, John. Um, In the Puritans, I discovered friends who knew how to take my heart in one hand and a Bible in the other hand and create a pipeline, a channel, a bridge for oxygen to flow from the scripture into my heart Hmm. uh, to connect the two in a way that actually helped, um, in a way that much preaching and writing today doesn't, as faithful as it is and true as it is. Um, So I just always need help in the Christian life, I suppose, is what sparked my interest in them. You know, in terms of books and autobiography, it was was Packer's A Quest for Godliness, which I think was published in 1990 by Crossway, a series of collected essays from Packer. And you cannot read that and then close it and not go read the Puritans. It's just, it like sends you off into them. And so wading in, starting with, (laughs) I remember going into the the basement of Buswell Library at Covenant Seminary, finding John Owen's Death of Death and the Death of Christ to settle the L and Tulip once and for all in my mind. And I never read the first page of it because Packer's introduction was all I needed. Hmm. It was so clear. Um, but eventually I did make my way over to Richard Sibbs, The Bruised Reed. What a gorgeous book. Uh, William Bridge, A Lifting Up for the Downcast, Lesser Known Puritan. Um, uh, Series of sermons on Psalm 42 and 43. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? You know, the Puritans, they would take one verse 
ring it dry, ring it dry, ring, 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 and out come 300 pages, and they send it off to the publisher on one verse. Yeah. And, and uh, so he was dealing with Psalm 42.5 there. Um, I would also say, brother, I grew up in a home where the Puritans were not ridiculed. That helped. I yep. never had a caricature to get over. Uh, they were always talked about with esteem. Um, and so that, that was helpful too. So those are a couple of thoughts. Well, I, I will say, Dane, the, the title of your book is very un-Puritan-like in the fact that it's so short and concise. Because <laughs> obviously <laughs> the Puritans are, are so well known for their paragraph-length titles. Right. And so I'm guessing that even though you have a significant position there at Crossway, you were unwilling or unable to actually produce a Puritan title for this book. Both unwilling and unable, and happily so. <laughs> yes. Well, speaking of the Puritans, though, uh, I wanted to ask this question from a little different angle. Um, if you could spend one day with an individual Puritan figure, not just, we're not talking about reading his works, but we're talking about actually spend a day with an individual Puritan, who would you select to spend that day with? Hmm. What an interesting question. Not John Owen. I don't think I'd enjoy his company much. Um, probably Bunyan. Okay. John Bunyan. Yeah. The tinker from Bedford, the preacher, because there would be no academic wall to get over to access him and understand him. The man was so, as you guys know, I mean, it's in Pilgrim's Progress, but it's also in the 60 some other books he wrote. He was so earthy. He was uneducated. He was, um, you know, sort of Luther-like in his uh, ability to pull on uh, everyday realities to make his points and, and, my sense in reading him, Matt, is that um, he was a joyful man um, and, and a, a sufferer manifestly so that there would be a softness, I hope, I think, about him. Um, but those other guys would just intimidate me. <laughs> yeah, John and I were actually talking before uh, before you joined us about, about that reality. And, you know, I, I'm a big Jonathan Edwards fan, but I'm not sure what spending a day with him would look like other than watching him sit in his study for 13 hours. And then, you know, which could be entertaining at some level, I suppose, but I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, the, just the, the humbleness of Bunyan, I think, is, is attractive yes. as someone that you think, I could, I could relate to him without uh, having to climb that academic wall, like you mentioned. Totally agree. Uh, Dane, a number of our listeners are, are either uh, local church pastors or uh, we have a good contingent of college students uh, that listen to our podcast as well. Um, where would you recommend starting in reading the Puritans for somebody that hasn't read any of them or uh, maybe have only been exposed to Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, um, the sermon by Jonathan Edwards? Where would you recommend they start? Obviously, the Quest for Godliness book by Packer is a great recommendation, but, but anywhere else? Quest for Godliness is great. I wouldn't suggest anyone start there. It's pretty dense and it's about 400 pages. I mean, Packer is so peerless in his use of English prose, but... Um, Go, go to the source. You know, um, uh, the last place I would send anyone is um, dissertations written by 29-year-olds on the Puritans, which would be totally off-putting to reading the Puritans themselves, who were English and wrote in English, so we're not dealing with any translation hurdle the way we are with, say, the Reformers. And, um, and they write in a way, actually, you can understand it. I mean, most of the Puritans' works are sermons. It's just collections of sermons. They're preaching to their people, most of whom are very grossly uneducated, and they're preaching to their people. And um, 
So, so you know, I mentioned Richard Sibbs, A Bruised Reed a little while ago. Get the little Puritan pe- paperback, A Bruised Reed. What is it, 150 pages or something? And um, don't try to get through it in a weekend. Just plod through maybe, maybe a page or two a day at the end of your Bible mm-hmm. reading. And after two or three months, you have been surprised with how accessible and how heart-helpful um, the Puritans are. And Sibbs was one of, one of the fountain Puritans. He was a generation older than Goodwin and Owen and Bunyan. Um, in fact, he had a key place in Goodwin's life as Goodwin was becoming a preacher and was preaching the law instead of gospel. So he's, he's a rep, good representative guy. Um, but So don't start with John Owen's The Death of Death. Uh, um, you know, uh, if you went to Owen, something like either the mortification of sin or communion with God, Sibs the bruised reed, even Goodwin's The Heart of Christ is pretty analytical. Hmm. There's gold, but you have to mine hard for it. Uh, not the case with something like Sibs the bruised reed. Um, I don't know if you could do better than starting with that one. No, thank you. Yeah, that's that's really helpful, Dane. Um, I know that um, when I have opportunity in the classroom, uh, I, I like to try to recommend that um, people, as they're sort of, if you want to call it maybe a gateway drug into uh, into this whole area, is uh, Jonathan Edwards' sermon, "The Excellency of Christ." Excellent. And uh, you know, because a lot of students, like John mentioned, they've maybe read sinners in the hands of an angry God. Uh, and so they have a very narrow picture of who Edwards is. And then you put them onto excellency of Christ and it's like opening up their whole world to the richness of, of the Puritans through that. But yeah, those are great suggestions. I love that, Matt. It's, it's lamentable that in my ninth grade literature class with Mrs. Arbiter at Libertyville high school, sinners in the hands of an angry God was presented as the representative picture of the Puritans, and actually Edwards was not a Puritan, he was 50 years later on a different continent, but right. he was very Puritanical, uh, that's not a good adjective, he was Puritan-like, yes. Um, yes. And, uh, but the, you know, and that's not even his most terrifying sermon, the justice of God and the damnation of sinners is far yeah. more terrifying, but neither that sermon or sinners in the hands of, the angry, of an angry God are representative especially of the mature Jonathan Edwards, who more and more uh, Edwards scholars have shown, spoke of the loveliness and grace of God, never denying the wrath of God, but the emphasis of his ministry did flower and grow and shift a bit. So um, as we, as we start to wind down here, I wanted to ask um, what, uh, what sort of other things are you currently working on in terms of your own writing project? Obviously, projects you have a uh, a very busy life there with your responsibilities at Crossway, but you continue to write and publish. So, are there any other things you're currently working on uh, that we could look forward to seeing at some point, hopefully down the road? Well, thanks, Matt. Um, I just handed in last week a manuscript on uh, around the theme of growing in Christ. Um, the title that I'm giving it is Deeper, colon, Real Change for Real Sinners, as opposed to Behavioral External Change for Theoretical Sinners. And um, so it's my best attempt to say, hey, here we are straggling our way through the Christian life. How do we actually get real traction um, uh, beyond just the, the textbook answers? And so that's what that book is. It'll be actually be a 50,000-word treatment and then a 10,000-word treatment, kind of one for the pastor and one for the layperson. It's part of a series that Crossway is doing with Union, Mike Reeves. Um, it's the second of four books in that series. So um, that's what I've just, just sent in. And the next project is a theology of 2 Corinthians. Excellent. Excellent. And then uh, one more question along those lines. Uh, in your role at, at Crossway there, you oversee the, the many different Bibles that Crossway publishes. So are there any in particular that have recently come out or are coming out that, that you're especially excited about in terms of the different uh, kind of Bibles that, that Crossway is, is publishing there? 
Oh, thanks, Matt. The, the first one that leaps to mind is one that is in, in the mix, in, in progress, um, being edited by Steve Nichols down at Ligonier. Uh, we're calling it right now the ESV Historical Study Bible. And basically what it is is a study Bible and the written notes attached to the verses are written by dead people instead of living people. Okay. So it's, it's the Reformers, the Puritans, the, the, the Princetonians, the Church Fathers, the, um, and comments they make on the, on the text. And um, so, for example, just today, Gerald Bray sent in his section of the New Testament that he was responsible for, five or six books in the New Testament, and that was great to receive. So um, I think that will be a really fun, fun, such a frothy word, but such a, a, a useful, meaningful, helpful ministering edition for uh, church leaders and Christians to have on their shelf to, to say, uh, see what um, the great ones of the past have said about a given text. That's fantastic. Well, Dane, um, we are basically out of time. This, I, we knew this would go fast as John and I were talking before you came on. There's so much we could continue to talk about, but um, I, I know both of us, want to thank you for writing this book and for the way it has ministered to us individually. And um, I, I, I have uh, been very proactive in recommending this to others. And, you know, we, we actually joked that shortly after we announced on our podcast that, um, that we were going to read through this, Amazon was sold out. So you know, it, whether that's a correlation or causation sort of situation, we'll leave that to the listener. But um, we we have been thrilled to see how widely acclaimed this book is, and I know that um, I know that all all glory goes to Christ for that, and that you are the conduit through which uh, God is is helping us see these things. But um, thank you for your faithfulness which is what our role ultimately is, our, 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 your faithfulness to try to share with others these remarkable truths about who Jesus is in fresh ways so that um, we can grow in our love for Christ and our, and our obedience to him. So thank, thank you for writing that. Oh, Matt, you dear guy. Well, um, heck yeah. And amen to all you said. Thank you so, so much. I'm actually deeply moved at your... Um, solidarity and shared heart with me in wanting to get this message out to fellow Christians. And um, so it's a privilege, honor to talk with you guys. Thank you so much. And uh, God bless you. Dane, right. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us, Dane. We'll catch up again soon. Thanks guys. Bye-bye. Well, we are especially grateful for Dane taking the time to join us. And uh, I know John, uh, I really enjoyed getting to, uh, hear Dane talk about the book, and what one of the things that stood out to me was his passion for the message of gentle and lowly. Oh yeah, his his passion uh, was, I mean, just through the roof. It, it, during the interview, it, it almost caught me off guard a little bit about how passionate he was. Um, another thing that I appreciate about the interview was to see you guys. Now you guys are friends, but not not like best friends, but to see appreciation for one another and encouragement towards one another was, uh, it was just good to see. Yeah. Dane's a great guy and, uh, always very encouraging. And so it's been fun to, uh, see what the Lord's done in his life. And since we recorded that episode, it was just announced, I believe maybe yesterday that, um, he is going to become the senior pastor at that church in Naperville that he was serving as an elder and I, I believe that means he's also leaving Crossway Publisher. But uh, in any case, I'm confident uh, the Lord is going to use him in significant ways. So, uh, well, we're at episode 30. And so, John, um, let's talk a little bit about the athlete. Yeah, so uh, I'll, I'll run down our list here. Um, we have quite a few athletes who have worn uh, n- number 30. Uh, the the f- the first on our list, and we'll do. It looks like baseball players first. Uh, Nolan Ryan, yeah, uh, war number thirty, uh, drafted by the Mets. I, I might add. Um, <laughs> and then uh, and then uh, Ken Griffey Jr. also uh, war war thirty. 
Uh, Steph Curry, um, you may have heard of him, basketball Maybe. player. Yeah, a little bit. Um, and then, uh, and then a Nick that I'm quite partial to, uh, Bernard King. I threw that on there for you. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. I don't think he's <laughs> going to win out the day here. There's some really excellent names on this list who have worn 30. Uh, and then, uh, and then some OSU guys. You want to walk us through some OSU players? Yeah, so we've got a few here. Uh, Greg Belisari was a linebacker in the mid-90s on some good OSU defenses. Uh, Lydell Ross was an underappreciated running back in the early 2000s. And there's a current player, uh, Demario McCall, who's also a sort of a running back hybrid position kind of guy who's come in very hyped but just hasn't maybe lived up to all of his potential. But I, I also wanted to mention – as I did the, the research for this uh, segment, I came across a name that I had never heard of this guy before, but felt like we had to mention him because of his name. Gump Worsley was a oh. goaltender. Did, are, were you familiar with this guy? Ever heard of him? I, I don't believe I've ever heard of Gump. Uh, <laughs> partially, part because he played in the 50s to the 70s, it looks yeah. like. But he looks yeah. like he was quite good. I mean, that's, that's pre-face mask days for those goaltenders. Yeah, the fact that you can survive for 20 years as a, as a goaltender in the NHL is remarkable in and of itself. But with a name like Gump Worsley, I figured we had to mention him. Yeah, they, they, don't, they don't do names like that anymore, do they? No, no, Just not really. naming their kid Gump. Yeah. Okay, so um, who do you like out of that list to, to name the episode after? Well, uh, I think I'm partial to the baseball players. Uh, okay. Uh, Nolan Ryan and Ken Griffey Jr. How about yourself? I agree. Okay. Between Nolan Ryan, Nolan Ryan and Ken Griffey, who do you like? That's a tough one. Um, I, I probably lean towards Nolan Ryan, which it's, it's hard to pass over Ken Griffey Jr. because he – was just a, such a phenomenal player, had one of the smoothest swings you'll ever see. But, I mean, Nolan Ryan was a beast. He was throwing no-hitters into his 40s, which yeah. is, is unthinkable almost. And the number of strikeouts, I think he had – I think for his career, didn't he have maybe seven no-hitters, I think, in his career? I mean, just some ridiculous number like that. Something like that. And he was just always dominant um, and was, wasn't afraid of fights either, which sometimes no. those, those pitchers can be. But, but he would regularly mix it up uh, yeah. with, with guys to fight, uh, which, you know, doesn't go over big today, but, but I, I still appreciate it a little <laughs> bit, you know. Indeed. So are, are we good with going with Nolan Ryan then? I, I'm good with Nolan, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's go that route. All right. One thing we liked. Well, uh, one thing for me this week uh, is the TV show that I've been uh, been enjoying recently called Alone. Uh, basically, they take 10 contestants out into some wilderness separated by, by 10 or so miles so they won't uh, see one another. Uh, and whoever survives the longest gets a half million dollars. Um, so... Uh, you have guys that are trying to build shelters, all sorts of things, and they have to carry film equipment with them so that they can film themselves out there. So there's no camera crews or anything like that, and it's just uh, it's just survival. Um, and people make it somewhere, usually between like 75 and 85 days is sort of the winning wow. number of days out there. So almost three months um, living off the land, fishing. I saw one guy shoot a moose with a bow and arrow. Um, <laughs> It was, it was pretty impressive. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, – I mean, you and I are both introverts, but I think that's a level of introvert introversion that uh, neither of us would be comfortable with. No, no. I tried to do a two-day hike on my own, and it was terrible. I, could, I, I couldn't do it. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, yeah, I've been enjoying that on, uh, on Hulu and, uh, and Netflix. It's, it's phenomenal. I, I wouldn't last a week, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and how about yourself? What's one thing this week? So uh, good friends of ours, uh, Chris and Stephanie Holm, are leaving for the mission field. And so um, on the one hand, this is not one thing I like because it's sad to see them go because they're good friends. And uh, I, Chris was the head coach of the basketball program at Lakeland where I coached. He was my head coach. I was his assistant um, or assistant to the head coach, depending on the day. And uh, <laughs> a, a, as a result, um, 
it's it's sad to see them go, and yet uh, it's also exciting to see people following God's call on their life to take the gospel. They're going to uh, Tanzania, and Lord willing, going to be serving at a school there where he will help teach, I think, second grade. And um, it's a mixture of missionary kids, uh, local kids there in, the, in, in, in Tanzania, and a good number of non-Christian kids come to the school because it's one of the best schools in the city. So there's definitely evangelistic opportunities there. So it's fun to see them uh, use their talents and abilities and uh, in that context, but sad to see them go halfway around the world. So that's my sort of mixture of one thing I liked and one thing I don't like. <laughs> but, but good to see people going into the mission field. Always, Absolutely. always. And uh, just a, a reminder of the, the call to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, which, um, you know, uh, that's, that's p- one of the big things that we do as part of our role at Grace is to help equip people. Not that Chris and Stephanie went to, uh, well, they, they, uh, Stephanie did go to the undergrad side here at, did. Uh, at Grace. Did. Yeah. And so in any case, we certainly rejoice with uh, seeing uh, workers going out into the fields and are confident that God will use them in mighty ways. So that's my one thing I liked. Yeah, awesome. Well, I, I think we're ready to call this mission accomplished. Are you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've done quite a bit. Yes, we have uh, covered our various and sundry topics. And uh, again, for those new listeners, we encourage you to go back and check out uh, previous episodes. And we like to launch episodes once a week. So far, we're on that consistent pattern. Every Tuesday, we're putting up new content. So we'd love to uh, have you back and uh, listen again and spread the word You know, on social media. Let people know that you're enjoying the podcast and leave us a review or a rating. But uh, until next time, the Lord bless you all real good. Later. Later.